We've come as far as Mark 14. Jesus had spent chapter 13 speaking about apocalyptical matters. And so we come to verse 1 of chapter 14. He says, It says, After two days it was the Passover of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. They've been trying to do this for a long time, of course. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. So we come to this just a couple of days before the end of Jesus' earthly life. A couple of days, it's going to be the Passover. That's uh, on the Hebrew calendar, Nisan 14, or sometimes the month is given as Abib. It's the same month, different different name. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread follows, and that's from Nisan 15 to uh, Nisan 21. We read first about these feasts back in Exodus chapter 12. This is the beginning of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It says in verse 1, The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. So he's changing the first of the year. They had a, a, a secular first of the year and they had a religious first of the year. And they, well, they still do, I think. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. They had to take this perfect lamb. They take it on the tenth into their household. It says in verse 6, Now you shall keep keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So they would all kill their lambs at the same time at the twilight on the 14 Nisan. So they'd take this lamb into their home for four days. They would have this lamb around and, you know, they'd make sure it had no blemishes. So they're examining this lamb. And so we see the parallel with uh, Jesus having come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, presenting himself as the lamb. Uh, to Israel, and then he was under examination for four days by the religious leaders and so forth, and of course he was put to death at that time for our sins. In verse 7 he says, They shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. So they would actually uh, take hyssop or something and, and put it on the doorpost, both sides of the door and on the lintel above. And as the blood would drip down, you would get, you know, the cross with the dripping of the blood, running of the blood. And he says, they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. They roasted the whole thing. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. 
so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So they're getting ready to leave Egypt. And they've got to be ready to go. He says, For I'll pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And so this is, you know, the tenth plague upon the Egyptians. Uh, he's had nine building up to this point, and then he's warned Pharaoh, you know, the firstborn is going to be taken. They're all going to die. Firstborn of man, firstborn of beast in Egypt. And he gives uh, Israel this Passover celebration process so that it's called Passover because the angel of death passes over them and does not kill their firstborn sons. And it's based on what their belief in the Word of God, what God has told them to do. Now, somebody could have said, oh, that's silly. I'm not going to do all this lamb thing, you know, I know God will take care of it. And they would have, it would have been disastrous for them. They would have lost their firstborn. An Egyptian, on the other hand, they could say, well, you know, this God of Israel, he's been doing all this stuff and he seems like somebody that I should be listening to, so uh, I'm going to do what he says. And if they had taken a lamb and killed it, I'm sure the Lord would have passed over that that family and their son firstborn would not have died. He says in verse 13 of Exodus 12, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when I see the blood I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you a memorial. That's Passover is a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. It's interesting, the people that keep the Passover today and have kept it through centuries, who are they? They're the Jewish people. Right? That identifies who this group is. And nobody else can claim to be them unless they've been carrying this on for a long time. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. The leaven, of course, represents sin. They were to get all the leaven out and then only eat unleavened bread for these seven days. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. That's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a holy convocation. Vocation for you. No manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only may be prepared by you. So these were uh, Sabbath days. There was not to be any work done. The first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the last day, no matter what day of the week they fell on, uh, they would be Sabbath days, or they're called, and uh, John calls them high holy days. So you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your houses, since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. 
You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. So this is the feast that is coming up in two days from when this is being written. He says in another place, um, Exodus 12.43, he says, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat it. Uh, only believers were to eat this meal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, 1 through 13, Paul is addressing uh, a situation in the church at Corinth which involved uh, sexual immorality between a man and his father's wife. And uh, he's talking, he's, he's rebuking them because they were uh, prou- proud of their tolerance of this situation, you know, and their love. You know, well, we, you know, that's not a big deal. And uh, he says, you should have mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And so there was to be a discipline for this situation. In verse 6, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so there was this leaven of sin in the fellowship that was not being dealt with. And he says, a little bit of leaven spreads. You know, it just continues to spread. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So, this Passover feast has to do with Jesus, with the Christ. He is our Passover. So, God, if we believe in the Lamb that's been sacrificed for us, then God will pass over us in judgment. We will not be judged for our sins because he was judged for our sins. He says in verse 8, And therefore let us keep the feast not with old leaven nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So this should have a, you know, an effect upon our lives and our behavior. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet, I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. We can't avoid interacting with these people, nor uh, does he want us to avoid interacting with these people. We're not to partake of them, but we're to be um, witnesses to them, light shining. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who's sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Don't approve of what they're doing. Don't accept it as normal Christian behavior. Uh, You speak to them uh, the truth in love, you know, sharing with them what that is. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? And he tells them, put away from yourselves that evil person. So we find Christ, our Passover, being sacrificed for us. John chapter 1, verse 25. John the Baptist was being challenged as to why he did the things that he did. And in verse 25, the religious leaders asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who is coming after me, and he's preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. So he's speaking of the Passover lamb. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The Son of God comes as the Lamb of God, giving himself for our sins. Down in verse 35 of John 1, says again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. So we have this Passover, which is a one day event. It starts the evening of Nisan 14, goes to the evening of Nisan 15. And then we have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which follows for seven days. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 4 through 8, Uh, The Lord says, These are the feasts of the Lord, holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. We'll see how these uh, days of convocation or high holy days, how they work into the week when Jesus is crucified. So Jesus is the Passover lamb. His blood cleanses all who believe on him from their sin. There is no longer any condemnation for those who believe, for those who trust in him, not in their own works or goodness for salvation. So this two days is coming. The chief priests and the scribes are seeking how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. And they've been trying to kill him since early in the book of Mark. You know, For several years they've been seeking opportunity to take him and kill him. But they said not during the feast lest there be an uproar of the people. So they decide... Well, we don't really want to do it while there are a lot of people in Jerusalem. That could be bad because he's gotten pretty popular. They've begun seeking his death sometime earlier. They originally plotted to take him as soon as possible. This is in John 11:57. It says, now Both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, he, he should report it that they might seize him. They were wanting to get a hold of him, put him to death, but then the triumphal entry happened. And people are shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, son of David. And they then examined him and they laid unsuccessful traps for Jesus during that week. And Jesus became more popular than ever because he was answering uh, with great wisdom the things that they challenged him with. And, and they were looking bad in the sight of the people. Jesus was looking good. So they decided to avoid arresting him during the feast because he was very popular with the populace. And they might experience a backlash. This was a very political strategy for them to take. With the crowds gone, it would be easier to take him. 
Now, David Guzik points out, as the chief priests and the scribes plotted the murder of an innocent man, it showed that they did not fear God. Nevertheless, they feared the people, lest there be an uproar of the people. These religious leaders were not afraid to murder the Son of God. They just believed they had to do it in a politically smart way. How much like our hypocritical politicians today. <laughs> but God has a different schedule. Try as they might to avoid a feast or rest, God would ensure the circumstances by which they will go for it. Of course, this is God's plan all along. The Passover lamb must die during the Passover feast. In Matthew 26, verses 1 and 2, uh, this same scenario, it says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, You know that after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus himself gives the unalterable schedule ahead of time. This is what's going to happen in two days. can't be changed. It's been determined. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So we find that this is God's plan, but man's hands carrying it out. By God's foreknowledge, he determined that this would take place. And then he provided the prime opportunity for those who had the desire to carry out what he had predetermined to take place. Some might accuse God of entrapment. But he does not tempt anyone with evil, as he tells us in James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he's drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And and sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Nor does he cause anyone to sin. Thus men are without excuse, as we're told in Romans chapter 1. Since the creation of the world, verse 20, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Anyone who does wickedly will find that they are without excuse. So, um, God has His plan. Men are deciding, well, we're not going to do it at this time. They're going to do it at this time if they're going to do it at all. And so he provides them with this opportunity through the betrayal of this one who's one of Jesus' disciples, one of his close followers. So man carefully makes his plans. God is not concerned about the plans that man makes. Do as he will, man's plans cannot disrupt God's design. He is far above and beyond any of the schemes of mankind. 
In Proverbs 19.21, we're told there are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. That's what's going to stand. No matter how man plans or schemes or is going to bring something about, it cannot overcome, contradict the Lord's counsel. That will be what is fulfilled. Proverbs 21 and verse 30 says, there's no, there's no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. You can try to find that as much as you like. It's not going to be there. We've read recently Psalm uh, 2 numerous times. And we'll look at it once again. Now, this is a psalm that is very significant for our day as well as for future days. He says, Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be under the rule of God. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then He shall speak to them in His wrath and distress them in His deep displeasure. And he tells them, yes, I've set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel this day that's coming. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. So we can submit and live and even be blessed beyond measure or resist and die and spend an eternity in misery. It's not a difficult choice, but unbelief cannot see that choice. And it's time to kiss the sun. I was looking back at some older studies dealing with this same issue. And I quoted the same song. By, it's, it's a song by Bob Dylan. It's called When He Returns. It was during his gospel phase. And I had some good songs then. And part of this lyric was, Of every earthly plan that is known to man, He is unconcerned. He's got plans of his own to set up his throne when he returns. That's what will happen. In verse 3, Mark 14, he says, Being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard, and then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So he comes to this house of Simon the leper, where there's a dinner that's been prepared. I don't think Simon's still a leper. Perhaps he had been healed. 
of this because nobody would go to the house of a leper and and have a meal. So this is actually an event that happened a bit earlier, but Mark's citing it to give us some background for the betrayal of Jesus, showing the attitude of the betrayer. This is introduced here to explain the cause of the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. He being the one of the disciples who raised the objection, we'll see that, that he started it, prompted by his ruling passion, which is avarice, the final disappointment of which, by the answer of Jesus and his symbolical interpretation of the woman's act, coupled with his recent explicit predictions of his death, first determined him on betraying him. Uh, Guzik again says, often spices and ointments were used as investments because they were small, portable, and could be easily sold. So instead of buying stocks and bonds, they might buy an alabaster alabaster flask of this ointment. Uh, this flask of oil was probably intended as a dowry for marriage. The groom would pay a bride price as part of the marriage covenant, but a woman's wealth made her a more attractive match. I guess that's still true a lot of times. <laughs> it was very expensive oil, 300 denarii, 300 days wages, or a year with the Sabbaths subtracted. You know, we're talking about about a year's wages, so think about what you can earn in a year. Think about pouring it out upon Jesus. That's what this woman did. Have you wasted anything on Jesus lately? Of course, you cannot in reality. But there are many who will think that your commitment and service to the Lord, rather than a life of pleasure, is a waste. Your decision and desire to do what is right in His sight, rather than following your heart, is a great tragedy to many. We're called to be servants of the Lord, so we must seek Him for His will for our lives. His general or universal will is in Scripture. But he, de he desires to give us more specific guidance at times. And so we seek him for his direction and his desire for us. If we seek him concerning this and we hear nothing, uh, if we're listening, then we stay the course until he commands otherwise. Lord, is there something you want me to do? Is there something I should waste upon you? What direction do you have for me to go other than, you know, we got commands in Scripture. We've got the general guidance in Scripture, but He wants to guide us by His Spirit. Show us the things specifically that He would have us do. Uh, and if we're listening and we don't hear anything contrary to what we're doing, then we're to stay the course until He commands otherwise. Saul of Tarsus, He was trying to get through to, and Saul wasn't listening. And so we know that God took some special measures with Saul in his conversion. Saul later, later writes, as Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, As God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordain in all the churches. And then he says, Was anyone called while circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Was anyone called while uncircumcised? Let him not be circumcised. So he's saying, If you're a Gentile, you don't have to become a Jew. If you're a Jew, you don't have to become a Gentile. Circumcision's nothing, uncircumcision's nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Let each one remain in the same calling in which he was called. He says, Were you called while a slave? 
Do not be concerned about it, but if you can be made free, rather use it. For he who is called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. If you're free, don't sell yourself (laughs) into slavery. Brethren, let each one remain with God in that state in which he was called. So we stay the course. And then God may call us to something different or something specific at some point. If we do think the Lord's speaking to us about something specific, for example, foreign missions, distinguished from missions in which we are all called to be engaged wherever we are, uh, then we seek the Lord for confirmation. We want to be certain that it is He who is speaking. Then we pursue the call and He will open doors that no man can shut. We can also receive guidance from shut doors as Paul and Silas did when they were on the mission field in Acts chapter 16, verses 6 and 7, as Paul was seeking to go into Asia. It says, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And they, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So shut doors. They weren't allowed to go. We don't get any specifics of how the Lord communicated this to them, but they weren't allowed to go to these places. And then it says, Paul had a dream one night, and there was a man of Macedonia. You know, he's dressed in Macedonian clothing. and all. He says, come over here and help us. And at that point in the book of Acts, Luke says, then... We perceive that maybe God wants to go, wants us to go to Macedonia. That's the first we. So, uh, one reason why they weren't allowed to go to these places, they had to then go to Troas, and that's where Paul picked up Luke. And so, you know, get over here. I want you to meet Luke. You know, you're going to be co-workers. <laughs> and then go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. And I don't know that that's the reason or the only reason, but certainly... Uh, that's where the book of Acts takes on a we uh, in the writings of Luke. And we went here and we went there. Uh, This woman is not identified by Mark or Matthew. This is spoken of in Mark, Matthew, and John. It's, It's her act of sacrifice that's emphasized. John, however, tells us that this is Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That's in John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, uh, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus, who, was, who had been dead, was who had been dead, whom, they, whom he had raised from the dead. And there they made a supper, made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So here's Lazarus raised from the dead. And it would be interesting to be invited to a, a fellowship meal, you know, and somebody like Lazarus is there. <laughs> Yeah, And then we recall Mary's devotion back in Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. It says, It happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. She'll listen to you, Lord. She won't listen to me. (laughs) And Jesus answers and said to her, Martha, Martha, 
You're worried and troubled about many things. I'm I'm more Martha than I am Mary. You know, we can we all are either Martha or Mary in, in some of these ways. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. That good part was pouring herself out upon him and sitting in his presence, being ministered to by him. And so we see uh, Mary's great devotion here. But uh, there were some who were indignant, and they said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Now John gives us the details once again, and also in John chapter 12 and verse 4, John says, one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So Judas is the one who speaks up first. This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put in it. Now, if there's not a lot in the money box, it's harder to, harder to hide your uh, withdrawals. But if you've got 300 denarii in there, you know, so there's, you know, this is, Judas's motivation, you know, the, the gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, don't tell us the name of the woman. Uh, John, writing much later, you know, maybe Mary's off the scene. Maybe she didn't want, you know, don't, don't put my name in there. But now she's gone. He says it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And then we find him identifying Judas specifically as the one who began this. He was the instigator. Some of the others joined in the criticism of Mary, perhaps the majority of them, since Matthew says in Matthew 26, 8, he says, when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this way? So apparently most of them were swept up in this same kind of an idea. Uh, but Judas began it. Why was this oil wasted? This assumes a value to the oil, and it was very valuable that is superior to the act of sacrifice for the love of Jesus, which is more valuable in God's sight. I think this passage uh, speaks to that. How can we place a value on these things? Is our valuation the same as Jesus' valuation? They criticize her sharply, it says, and the, the tense there is that they, they're keeping on with it. You know, they're... They're not just saying something and, and letting it drop, but they're continuing to speak critically of her in this decision. In doing so, they also criticize Jesus, since he's the master and he does not correct her. Instead, he commends her. He praises her for what she has done. It will be told throughout the world, and it has been. And continues to be, not as a criticism, but as a memorial to her. And it's a memorial to her faith. She's doing this out of faith because she's paid attention to what Jesus has, say, has said when the other disciples have not. They haven't got it. But Mary has got what he's been talking about. And she knows it's coming because he said it. This is perhaps the first social gospel program at least the first recorded proposal. There's a juxtaposition of good works for the sake of others and the service done for Jesus directly. Or perhaps the matter of the heart. What's the motivation of the action? We know for Judas it was money, money, money. For the others, they did have a genuine concern for the poor, did they? Or was it mainly proposing a good work to look good? 
which is something that we can easily do. Good works are good. Many who do not believe, uh, many who do not believe, do good works, and those good works can be good. But believers are to do good works. Matthew five sixteen, Jesus Sermon on the Mount: Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your God in heaven, your Father in heaven. First Peter two twelve: Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Titus 3.8 This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. They're not works by which we earn any kind of merit or salvation, as we know. They're works that are carried out in us by the Holy Spirit in obedience to the Lord. Titus 3.14, let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. Good works are fruit that come from the life. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and Good works. This is something we're to continually do, not neglecting the gathering of ourselves together. He says there also, Ephesians chapter two, verses eight through ten. By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's prepared the way. He's Got those works out there for us, good works that we should walk in, that he might be glorified. So good works are a good thing. Uh, But we know that God looks on the heart and not just on the actions. He sees the motive behind the action and and he judges the action accordingly. Do I do it for the Lord's sake and others' sake? Or do I do it for my own sake? Do I do it for the plaque that commemorates it so that I can hang it on my wall? Or for the Lord who gives the greater reward. Matthew chapter 6, Sermon on the Mount again. Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds, good works, before men to be seen by them. Otherwise you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, uh, it depends on which hand you're using. Maybe you're not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. You know, but you know, you, you get the idea that your charitable deed may be in secret. It's secret from other people. Keep it a secret from yourself as you can. <laughs> And your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly.
Spurgeon said, if we could all do more and talk less, it might be a blessing to ourselves at least, perhaps to others. Let us labor in our service for the Lord to be more and more hidden. As much as the proud desire to catch the eye of man, let us endeavor to avoid it. And then he said, you should rise above such idle dependence upon man's opinion. What matters it to you that your fellow, what your fellow servant thinks? To your own master you stand or fall. If you have done a good thing, do it again. He says, you know the story of the man who comes riding up to the captain and says, Sir, we've taken a gun from the enemy. Go and take another, said the matter-of-fact officer. That is the best advice which I can render to a friend who is elated with his own success. So much remains to be accomplished that we have no time to consider what has been done. So Judas gives this impression of his motive which is not genuine. And of course Jesus knows that it's not genuine. Uh, interesting word translated waste here in Matthew 14.4 um, where it says, Why is this fragrant oil wasted? Uh, the word can mean ruin, loss, or destruction. It's translated perdition in John 17.12. And this is the prayer of Jesus, and Jesus is praying. He says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of waste, <laughs> the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. It's applied to Judas there. Judas criticized Mary for wasting money, but he wasted his entire life. And so Jesus defends her. He says, leave her alone. She's done a good work for me. Uh, in the Greek, there are two words for good. This is agathos, which describes a thing which is morally good. Or there, there's a word. This word's different. Uh, there is kalos, which describes a thing which is not only good, but lovely or beautiful. So Jesus saying, she's done a good work for me, a beautiful work for me. A thing might be agathos and yet be hard, stern, austere, and unattractive. But a thing which is kelos is winsome and lovely with a certain bloom of charm upon it. He says you have the poor with you always. The war on poverty will never succeed. It will never end. If all the money spent in administration for the war on poverty was simply sent directly to the poor, the poor would be much better off. But we want our praise and our recognition, and we want it to continue. So don't be too successful in the battle. Does that sound cynical? I think that's the attitude that we see many times. Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10, he says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. A lot like Psalm 1. It says the, then he says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. In Deuteronomy chapter 15 and verse 11, the Lord tells them, the poor will never cease from the land. 
Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor and your needy in your land. We're to, we're to help the poor. We're to take care of the poor. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, and verse 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 12 through 15, he says, The administration of this service, this giving, there was going to be a famine in the land of Judea. This administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and with all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. And then Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. His, his gift cannot be compared uh, with any other gift. Uh, it's indescribable. And he says in verse 8, then Jesus in uh, Mark 14 says, she's done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Mary's act was an act of faith. It's possible she did this without a conscious understanding that she was anointing him for burial, that she was simply expressing her love for Jesus, but it is also possible that she took to heart the talk about him being betrayed, killed, buried, and raised the third day. Whatever the case, Mary was the only one who was able to anoint Jesus for burial. By the time the other women returned to the tomb on the morning of the first day of the week with spices, he was already risen from the dead. They didn't get to anoint his body. I wonder what happened with those spices. You know, I guess they used them for other things. You know, they, they weren't wasted. But they could have been wasted on Jesus. Mary could not do what she could not do, but she did what she could. And it wasn't cheap. It was sacrifice. It was costly. Spurgeon again says, Nothing puts life into men like a dying Savior. Get you close to Christ and carry the remembrance of Him about you from day to day and you will do right royal deeds. Come, let us slay sin, for Christ was slain. Come, let us bury all our pride, for Christ was buried. Come, let us rise to newness of life, for Christ has risen. Let us be united with our crucified Lord in His one great object. Let us live and die with Him, and then every action of our lives will be very beautiful. And then finally, we're told, Assuredly, I see you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Jesus is soon to die. But he states that this gospel, this good news of God's saving provision, will be preached in the whole world. Guzik once more says, There's a tendency within us all to look at this story and to say, I love Jesus also. Tell me what I should do to show it. But part of the woman's great love was displayed in the fact that she came up with the idea to express her love for Jesus in this way. She wasn't commanded to do this by anyone. If there was a command to do this, it would never be this precious. And Spurgeon says, Oh, cries a brother, tell me what I could do for Jesus. 
Nay, but brother, I must not tell you. The better part of the whole matter will lie in the hallowed ingenuity of your spirit in inventing something for him out of your own fervent soul. Now you've heard this saying, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It's the things done for Jesus that are not commanded, that are special. Going beyond the command and simply doing for him out of our love for the Savior. There's a passage in Luke 17, uh, verses 7 through 10. Jesus tells them, Which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk, and afterward you may eat and drink? Does he thank that servant? Because he did the things that were commanded him. Jesus says, I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now, I haven't even come close to doing all those things which I have been commanded. You know, just looking at the commands in Scripture that fall short. But if I were to keep all those things, I would just be an unprofitable servant. I wouldn't be adding anything to the Lord. I wouldn't be profiting Him in any way. I'd just be doing what it was my duty to do. What I was supposed to do. What I was supposed to get done. So it's those things beyond the specific commands of God. Those acts of devotion from our heart. And it might not be, you know, Jesus isn't here for us to do anything to His body. uh, His physical body. But we've got His body among us. And we've got, you know, others throughout the world that we can... Some of our acts of devotion, our heart toward Jesus can be spent upon those people. We can waste ourselves upon them if we would. In Jesus' name and for His sake, uh, looking to His body, looking to those that have need and that He would minister to that He comes across. So we'll stop there for the day and we'll pick up... uh, with this decision of Judas to betray Jesus when we come back to Mark. Lord willing, if we don't hear the trumpet this week, you know, (laughs) would that we would.